Well, if you weren't with us last week, we kicked off a message series called Acts. The, be, the movement begins. We're studying the book of Acts for the next 28 weeks, one chapter per week. And because many chapters are longer than we can cover at our services, uh, we wanted to give you supplemental information to be able to help you grow in Acts as you continue to follow along. So in your welcome programs every week, there is a section where we are showing you exactly what to read day by day so that when you come to church that Saturday or Sunday, you have read the passages that we'll teach on. So that's always going to be in your welcome program. So take that home and look at it. If you're like me and you forget to take one or you don't know where it is, it's always on our website. It lives there, thechapel.family slash acts, and you can access that. And then a couple times during the week, we're going to put out a Beyond the Weekend uh, email that is a devotion by our pastors, and they're going to look at different passages that we did not cover. So if you don't get our email devotional that's sent out now twice a week, you can write the word beyond in your email address legibly on a connect card, which is in the, on the back of your welcome program. Detach it and put it in a giving box. And then throughout the week, usually on Wednesdays, one of our pastors is going to put out a short video, even giving more depth to the passage that we're going to look at today, which is Acts chapter 2. So I invite you to open your Bibles and turn to Acts 2. I really want us to bring our Bibles. Uh, I know it, we can forget it or we can access it on our phone. That's totally fine. But there is something that's really powerful of just turning to the book itself and just reading it. It's going to reinforce that throughout our week when we're spending chair time as well. So grab your Bibles. If not, you can more than welcome to get it on your phone. And we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 2 today. And like I said, we can't cover the whole chapter. I'm really going to be looking at the latter half of Acts 2 today. But I want to explain what's happening in the beginning so it makes sense what Peter will be speaking about today. So I want to look at Acts chapter 2 verse 13 with you to kick things off. And it just is a funny interaction between Peter and these mockers. Acts 2.13 says, Others in the crowd ridiculed the disciples saying, They're just drunk. That's all. Now that's an interesting accusation to give to Jesus' disciples. They're drunk. And two verses later, Peter gives context to why they're talking about that. He's saying, these people are not drunk, as some of you are assuming. Nine o'clock in the morning is much too early for that. <laughs> I thought that was so funny. Like, Peter's like, eh. first of all, it's nine in the morning. You think these disciples are drinking? Come on. But the reason that they are coming off drunk to you is that they began to speak the languages of the people. Languages that they didn't know. They didn't go to school and study it for four years like we would do in high school and then hopefully stumble through the language. No, they were fluent in the languages. And these people are like, hey, they were speaking this language. Now they're speaking all these different languages. They must be drunk and out of their mind. And Peter says, no, 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 this is an act of God. This is the Spirit speaking through these disciples because Jesus wants to have a relationship with you. He wants to speak your own language. And this act of God showed these people there and then far away how much Jesus wants a relationship with them. And as Peter's talking to these mockers who are mocking these disciples, mocking Jesus, Peter goes into an incredible sermon. And it's two parts. The first part, he's talking about in Acts 2, 16 through 23. From the beginning, it was God's plan for Jesus to die on the cross and to be raised to life. This was always the plan from the beginning. Whether you think he's God or not, this was always God's plan. And then Peter follows that up in Acts 2, 24 through 35 by saying, though David was the king of Israel, 
He knew that Jesus, the Messiah, would come and ultimately reign as the king of the world. Peter's saying, look, when Jesus came, he came and inaugurated a kingdom, a kingdom that he's leading and that he's asking his people to play out and be a part of and lead on this earth. And that's what is happening, that what you're seeing unfold before your very eyes. And then Peter, he ends this sermon in verse 36 by saying this. So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. In other words, you didn't think he was God. You killed him. But guess what? The grave could not hold Jesus. He was predicted from the beginning to be the Lord and Messiah, and he is still the Lord and Messiah. He is reigning and ruling, and we are inviting you to join him in that. Well, these guys were mockers. These guys ridiculed Jesus. They wanted nothing to do with what these disciples are talking about. They're they're thinking back to their their Israelite uh, religion and thinking about all the things they've learned growing up. They're thinking, there's no way this could be the Messiah. Until they hear what Peter has to say. And look what happens in the next verse. This is Peter's words pierced their hearts and they said to him and to the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Now, pierced their hearts here in, in Greek simply means that they were overwhelmed with emotional distress. They were overwhelmed with this deep conviction that went deeper than they could have ever imagined. For they thought this Jesus was this guy who came and he died and he had no uh, presence here anymore and that there was no way that he could truly be God. Now, all of a sudden, these guys are cut deep. They're convicted. They're thinking to themselves, oh my goodness, this is who he says he is. This is what we've read about in the scriptures. This is who has come for us. And they're cut to the heart. And it's not just a feeling that you get. Oftentimes we could come to church and we have this feeling that, man, I want to follow Jesus and I, I want to do things for him. And then we go back to our regular lives. That's not what happened with these new followers of Jesus. No, they were convicted. They wanted to follow him. That's why he said, brothers, what do we do? Like, what do I do now? I want to follow this Jesus. I want to go where he goes. I want to join what you're doing. And so Peter turns to this crowd who mocked Jesus, who now believes that he is who he says he is, and he explains to them, here is what you do. And for the next few moments, I want you and I to know that there are two things that we ought to do when we figure out that Jesus is who he says he is. Because whether we were five years old or 55 years old, whenever we came to a relationship with Jesus or we figured out at least he is who he says he is, then There are two things that we have to do. And the first thing that we're going to read about is that we have to personally respond to Jesus. You can't just say, okay, yeah, Jesus is who he says he is, and then go back to your normal life. No, you have to respond to him. And what does it mean to respond to Jesus? Well, Peter, he lays this out to this crowd. He says this in verse 38. Peter replied, each of you must repent of your sins and Turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you're a millennial or a Gen Zer, I want to show you something that um, is an ancient artifact. You probably don't recognize it because of your age, and there's no problem with that. Um, you can go to different museums and, and find these there now. Uh, it's called a map, <laughs> a paper map. It's really fascinating. 
And before we had our phones, our, our Apple Maps, our Google Maps, our GPSs, we had to get these things out. And what was even more frustrating than trying to see what these maps were telling you was trying to get the map to fold up afterwards. Like, I would get so frustrated, I would just throw it in my back seat. I didn't even care. But these maps, they showed us where to go. And if you were driving on vacation or you were going to an unknown location, you couldn't just put it in your phone or put it on your uh, screen in your car. You had to get a map out and figure it out. And as you're going along, if you finally figure out that you're going in this direction, but then you're lost, you have to get the map back out and figure where you are. And at that point, you have two options. One, you don't admit that you're lost. And I don't know why this is, but many of us guys wouldn't. We're like, we're fine, but we're like thinking, oh my goodness, this is going to be really bad. We can continue to go in the same direction, or we can admit fault and say, okay, we need to get back on this highway. So we get off the exit, we turn around, and then we go back to where we're supposed to be. Now, when Peter tells the congregation or the group of people at that point, I should say, he says, hey, it's time to turn around. You're lost. You're going in the direction that you think life should go, but you are going in the wrong direction, even though it feels right, even though everybody else is going on the same direction on the highway, they're going the wrong way. And the only way that you can get to your destination where you want to go is if you get off at the nearest exit, the exit labeled God's forgiveness, It's acknowledging that I'm lost. It's acknowledging that I need God's forgiveness. It's acknowledging that it's by the Spirit of God that he will lead my life now. And so you get off the exit. You turn away from where you were going. You turn around with Jesus, and now you go in his direction. That's what it means when Peter says to repent of your sins and turn to God. So many people make it bigger than it is. It's simply acknowledging that I need Jesus, that I'm going the wrong way, that I'm getting off with Jesus, and now I'm going with Jesus. And when you get off at that exit of God's forgiveness, he's not going to be there pointing out your flaws. He's not going to have signs on the road showing you what you did wrong. All he's going to say is, hey, let's go. I'm ready for you. I've been ready for you. Let's go in the direction that I have for you. That's what Peter's telling these people. Repent. Turn to God. He will forgive you. And then he goes on to say this. In verse 38, it says, then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. After you say yes to Jesus, and now you're following his path, and now he is leading your way, he says the Holy Spirit, which is God's Spirit, will join with our spirit. And now he's going to lead our life. One of my favorite functions of my phone, when at least I'm traveling somewhere, is if I miss a uh, road, or I'm just not paying attention, all of a sudden it starts to tell you to what? Reroute, rerouting, rerouting, rerouting. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit's there with you, and if somehow you go back to where you were before or you're going the wrong path again, He is a compass for you. He literally says it's time to reroute. Even today, there's some of us that need to hear the Spirit of God telling you reroute, reroute, reroute. How you're living and what you're saying and what you're doing. Right now it feels good, but I'm telling you, you're headed in the wrong direction. And I will reroute you. Now, I may take you to places that you don't want to go. I may have you deal with things you don't want to deal with. But let me tell you, it's all in the purpose of your destination. And your destination 
It's not your dreams for your life. No, the destination is to become like Jesus. And he will get you there. That's what the Spirit of God does. He is a compass getting us to where we need to go. And where all of us need to go is to become a little less like ourselves and a little more like Jesus every step of the way. And then Peter, he says this, this promise is to you, to your children, to those far away, all who have been called by the Lord our God. Then Peter continued preaching for a long time, strongly urging all of his listeners, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Now obviously Peter is talking in the first generation, but whether it was the first generation or even now in 2022, I don't have to convince you that this world is a mess. It looks differently and because we're in living in different contexts, but the heart is deceitful above all things, whether it's then or now. And we live in a crooked generation where it is telling us to live a certain way. And we are called to fight against that. We are called to go against the grain or go against the current. One of my favorite water park attractions when I go to anywhere is the Lazy River. Amen to that. I just don't want to ride another slide. I don't want to go run around. I just want to get in the raft. And that little current underneath the water is going to take me exactly where I need to be. There are many of us in this room who call ourselves Christ followers and we're on the lazy river allowing the world to take us wherever it wants us to go. It is so easy to relax. It's so easy to find ourselves defined by the world and its ways and we just go wherever it goes because it's easy and everyone else is doing it. To follow Jesus, to save ourselves from this crooked generation isn't to fight back against the generation. We don't fight. We love. We love. That's how we're going to fight back against this crooked generation. And to do that, we have to get off the raft. And if you're like me, I know if I get off that raft and say I have a kid over here and i got to fight against the current to finally get my kid over here so he continues to go in the same direction, this lazy river, that's what you're going to have to do. And you're going to have to walk against the current. And it's going to be really hard. You're going to get made fun of for it. Your peers may turn on you. You may lose friendships and family relationships. But it's the only way we can save ourselves from this generation. And it doesn't mean we leave it. It doesn't mean we abandon its practices all the way. We don't go and live like monks. Jesus said we live in the world, but not of the world. Peter says to allow Jesus to define you and let the Spirit lead you in such a way where you are so loved and valued that when you do push against the current, not only will it fulfill you, as you're walking by other people or just lazily going down the river, they will notice too. And maybe, just maybe, they will get off the raft as well. That's why Peter says it's so important to respond to Jesus. And then after verse 41, I just love this. Those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day, about 3,000 in all. These people at the beginning of the day thought that these Christians were drunks. And then they became drunk themselves. They realized it wasn't alcohol that these people are drunk on. They're intoxicated by the Spirit. They are following Jesus and they are filled with the Spirit and they are doing something that's fulfilling not just to them but for the world's sake. And 3,000 of them heard this message of Jesus and responded. 
Again, that's why personally responding to Jesus is the first step. If you've never said yes to Jesus and you're looking at your life and you say, okay, I realize I've mocked Jesus, that I've been a part of this crowd who've been, who's been antithetical to him or I didn't believe in him, but now he is cutting me to my heart. I feel the conviction. I know that he is real. Then what you do is you respond You turn from your ways. You turn to Jesus. You allow the Spirit to be your guide, and he will reroute you every time you and I get it wrong. And then we do what we can to push against this generation. Yes, it will be hard, but it will always be worth it. That's the first thing we must do. But the second thing is just as important. It's that we have to participate in the body of Christ, the church. The following passage is just one of the most Beautiful passages in scripture. It's going to lay out what the church ought to be. Now, I've been just reflecting on what this says about what the church ought to be, and then just reflecting on the chapel. And I see a lot of similarities, and I am so encouraged. But if I'm honest, I see some gaps. And as we look at what a healthy body of Christ looks like, I want to challenge all of us about what it means to be a part of a church. You see, we think church is, yes, I'm going to service at 9 a.m. on Sunday. And you're partially right in the sense of we're coming together as the church, but the church isn't a noun, it's a verb. It's a movement. It's the people of God. Wherever the people of God are, there is Jesus. There is the church. And so often, we get our priorities messed up. And we believe the church is coming to a service, and that's just not the case. How do we know that? Well, when we wake up, it rained today, right? And if you're like me, you're looking at your lawn, and it's looking very, very long, (laughs) And so often we will wake up and we'll say, you know what, I'm just not feeling it today. Like I found out Pastor Eric's teaching, that's X, no. I gotta, I gotta mow the lawn, I, I got stuff to do. The church isn't a place that you go, we are the church. And when we don't come and at least gather together, we're missing out on you. We're missing out on a place For you to be you, because without you, we can't be the church in its fullest sense. It's not about, should I go or not? It's, I have to go. Because this is the body of Christ. This is the family of God, and I need to play my role either inside or outside the church. And what what we read here from Dr. Luke, who wrote Acts, is just so beautiful. Here's what the church is. And let's compare it to where we're at. This is a chapel. Acts 2.42, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer, which we just did. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. All the believers, they met together in one place, and they shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. That's what church life ought to be. Tony Merida, who's a pastor, wrote 
that obviously the church is also known as the body of Christ. And just like you and I, when we go to a doctor's appointment, they take our vitals because that's an indication if we're healthy or not. And if we're not healthy, then we have to go through more testing. And if we are healthy, well, we're good. And so Tony Merida said there is four vital signs that we need to check to see if the church is healthy according to this text. And what we ought to do as a church, how are you doing? How am I doing? How are we doing in playing these things? For instance, the first is vibrant worship. The church that gathered together to worship God. And when we think of worship, we think of music. And that is a huge part of it. But they also said worship was taking communion. Worship is prayer. All worship is, is what are we doing right now to direct our gaze to God? That he gets the glory. That all that we do and all that we say is for him. Both individually and as a church. If we do that, that's worship. But so often we look at worship through the lens of the band. And then I'll be honest with you. Some of us, we get mad if they don't play a song that we like. Or they didn't play our song. No. I get comment cards about it. Do you realize that our worship team is not a jukebox? I'm serious. I I couldn't be more serious. Our worship team is not here to perform a concert. If you want better worship or better songs, go to a different church. I'm serious. That's not what the chapel wants to be. We are not here to take requests. We are here to worship. Our worship team spends weeks in advance praying, looking at the text, looking at the sermon, and praying what does our congregation need that will glorify him, and then they play the songs accordingly. That's the kind of church I want to be at. That's the church that you should want to be at. You can pop in your Chris Tomlin CD on the way home and hear your song. This is collaborative worship where we are turning our gaze to God. We worship together, and that's why we gather in the row. It's so vital. I know we're all so busy. I know my son has a basketball tournament today. I get it. But when you're not in worship, gathered together, praying, taking the Lord's Supper, worshiping through music, we're missing you, we're missing each other. We're not a family. We need each other. The second thing is biblical nourishment. The row, the circle, and the chair. It's what we call it here at the chapel. It's taking God's word and opening it and and understanding it. And I know this is not easy to read. I know if you're just trying to pick a verse throughout the day and you just, boom, you hit here, it's going to say something maybe amazing, but something really bizarre. I get it. But that's why we spend time in the row learning about God's word. That is, our job as pastors is just to help you. Our job as pastors is not to entertain you. Our job as pastors is not to have you have a favorite. Like, if you don't like me, I don't care. As long as God's word is being preached, that's all I can control. And that's what you should want the most from me, is that I'm being faithful to the text, and if I'm not, that's where you can just rail into me. (laughs) But because I wasn't entertaining enough, or your favorite pastor wasn't here that weekend, that doesn't matter. This is to nourish us. To help us grow. And we have to do it not just on Sundays, but on Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays and so on. We do that through gathering with other people and we open the scriptures together. We do that through chair time where we open the scriptures ourselves. That's why we give you devotions. 
I often hear it say that I love coming to church because when I'm here, my tank can get filled. What if church doesn't need to do that for you? Church can top it off for you, but what if you could be filled all the time? What if you could be in God's word every day and so your gas tank can stay pretty full? Because right now in our economy, that sounds pretty good right now, doesn't it? It doesn't matter what gas prices are. Fill up yourself. And so when you come in, you may be three-fourths, I get it. We'll top it off for you. But throughout the week, you can nourish yourself. Your tank can always be full through the word of God. That's what the church came together to study. So they too were full. And loving fellowship. Let me ask you, when you read that passage, tell me who was rich and poor. You can't. Because whoever was rich, whoever was poor together, and they shared everything. They shared everything for each other's needs. They shared everything so they could help others outside the church. And they loved each other. They were a family where they accepted everybody for who they were. The greatest gift that anybody can give you and I is when they accept us even when we're flawed. And that's what we ought to do as a family. But too often, we don't like certain people because of how they live or how they act or whoever they are. That's called selfishness. That's called pride. That can't be in a family. You won't love someone and you won't share with them and you won't be with them in life if you think you're better than everybody. But if we honestly can look at each other and say, I am flawed and you are flawed and let's just be flawed together, then we can be his church. And so often, if I'm honest, people will come to church and then they'll leave and I'll talk to them and they say, I don't really like it here. And I'll say, well, why is not? And I say, they say, well, no one talked to me. That's a problem. So often I ask the question, who did you talk to? Isn't it so funny that we get mad at people for not doing what we aren't doing? How true is that? Every time we judge someone or get upset at somebody, put the mirror in front of your face. Are you doing that? Am I doing that? No. That's why we're mad. Because we don't have the guts to do what we want someone else to do for us. What if we became a church where no person could fall through the cracks because we didn't come in here to hear my favorite song and my favorite pastor and make sure the coffee is this and make sure the kids' ministry is We came in saying, I want to go talk to that person. I want to love that person. That person's grieving. That person's hurting. That person's going through this. That person just got married. That person just had a kid. And we love people where they're at. That's the church. And then we accomplish what we're trying to do as part of our 2023 vision is to build a culture of family where everyone's loved and everyone's accepted. And then finally, word and deed outreach. The church, they came together and they put all their money together and they said, okay, let's take care of each other's needs and let's take care of those outside the walls. And that's what they did. Through their words, through their actions, they led in such a way where people wanted to join them. And that's why at the end of this passage, it says people kept joining them. People don't want to judge, come to the church because they think it's a church. I want people to start coming to church because they know it's a family. And they're going to be loved and they're going to be taken care of and they're going to be a part of something that's bigger than themselves because Jesus is leading it. Imagine being a church like that. We are on our way. But we're not where we want to be yet. And that starts with me. But then it starts right with you too. This isn't my church. You just hired me to work here. It's your church. If you have a problem with one of these, don't write me an email. You write that to Todd. 
No, you fix it. You fix it. You fix it by being in God's word. We fix it by showing up to worship. We fix it by loving each other. We fix it by opening up our homes and opening our lives. Then the spirit will move. But the first way that has to happen is if we say, hey, Jesus, this is your church. We want to personally respond. And so what we want to do now is we want to worship at the end. And I have a team of friends up here that if you don't know Jesus, as you're going through this song, I want you to just walk forward and pray with one of our pastor's wives or our elders and their wives. They want to just walk you through how to personally respond to Jesus. So let's stand together and worship. And if you don't know Jesus, you come forward and let us help you know Jesus this morning.
Jesus, this is your church, and we are grateful to be called to be a part of it. Please help us to play our part and to do what you're calling us to do. That's the family of God. And if you're still standing here today and you're like, I I need to respond to what Jesus has done, there are people waiting for you here. You can stay in your seats. We want to help you know Jesus. That's what we're about here. Thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Grace and peace to you.